Hey, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Excellent. Excellent, excellent. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue our time in Genesis. We've been making our way through, um, and today we are really tackling uh, what you may already know. I mean, most people kind of know this story, so there's not a lot of surprises today in terms of the plot. But maybe there's a couple surprises in terms of the application, actually what it means for us today. So that's kind of what we're hoping for. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to ask you, what is the point of the scriptures? What's the point of the Bible? What, what's the point of the stories that we find in the Old Testament, specifically? Uh, I want to start by talking about our very approach to the Bible and to the scriptures. For some of us, for all of our claims and all of our songs, we approach the Bible as a rule book. A list of do's and don'ts, a very rigid list of what we should do and a list of what we should not do. Maybe you grew up with that understanding of the Bible or maybe you have that understanding of the Bible. So a lot of people approach the Bible that way, that the Bible is about judgment. And a lot of people approach this story that we're going to look at, that this story is about mostly judgment. Some approach the Bible, if you can believe it, as even like a scientific textbook, which it is not. It doesn't even claim to be. Um, it is not a scientific textbook, and if you are trusting the scriptures for your uh, science, it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. It's going to be tough to do anything. It's going to be tough to get anywhere. Some approach the Bible as a systematic theology. It's not even that. Maybe you've never heard that word, systematic theology, but it's basically the idea that the Bible is just, it just tells us about God, and it tells us all that we need to know about God, and all that, that that's what it's about. It's just, it's about, it's about God. It's about how all the pieces fit together. It's about Proving that God loves us and all that kind of stuff. It's a systemic theology. You know, a lot of people in our culture and in our time, and maybe you know, I hope you know people like this because we live in a culture where there's so many people like this for whatever reason. But there's a lot of people who come to the Bible and see it as just an ancient, irrelevant document that are full of contradictions. Do you, do you know anyone that sees the scriptures that way? Um, I hope you do because you live and you move and you work around people that think that, all the t that, think that about the Bible. Maybe you think that about the Bible. That the Bible is an ancient document, you come to it, and you, and you see that it's, it just contradicts itself. It's old, it doesn't have any kind of new understanding, and it's kind of outdated and irrelevant. Now, none of these ways that I just described, before you get really nervous, none of these ways is any of the way that we're trying to approach the scriptures here at Hope Springs. And this is really, really important. Our culture has some really big problems with the Bible, and maybe you have some really big problems with the Bible walking in here on a Sunday morning. But the problems that we have with the Bible might not be the Bible's fault. You might have to, like, it might be the way that we're reading it. It's possible, you know. It might be possible that your programming might have something to do with that. It might be possible that when we come to the scripture, instead of letting it speak for what it is, we come and we kind of hamstring it with a bunch of assumptions that we have. This is really, really important. I would suggest that this is as a much a problem with churches as it is with the culture for several reasons, and here's a couple. Our interpretations of the scripture can be very narrow, and if there's anything brought out that means, hey, maybe it's not this way that we've grown up thinking it is, maybe it's this way, we react against that viciously. Our view of the text might be off, not seeing it as not a science book, not even a history book, really, not even a systematic theology book. We do not engage people's questions effectively. A lot of people think that if they walk into a church gathering on a Sunday morning, they need to believe that the Bible is true in whatever ways the people sitting here think that it's true. That's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's foundationally wrong. 
Because when we come to the scriptures, we have to ask God to speak. And we cannot bring our assumptions to it. We have to ask him to move. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand. And we've got to let the scriptures be the scriptures. So that's what I'm praying. That's kind of a tall order for a text about Noah. But that's what I'm hoping for today. So why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes. And whatever I've said, why don't you ask God to speak to you? Whether you agree or not with anything that I've said so far, why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and just for a second get quiet. And for a second, maybe just ask God to speak in whatever ways you need to be spoken to today. Maybe you would be so bold as to ask God to challenge your assumptions about what the Bible is and what it isn't. Take some time. Pray. Whatever words make sense to you, just take a moment and seek God before we get into the text. Father, thank you for this time and for these people. God, for a chance to get together on a Sunday morning, speak freely and openly about who you are, to open up your word and ask really important questions about it and about us. For this text, this text that we are so familiar with, most of us, and even just culturally, the story is known. God, would you breathe some fresh air and some fresh life into the text? You tell us that your word is alive, which is weird and awesome that it is alive. Would it be alive today? Would it speak today? Not that my words would be spoken, whatever. God, would you speak through your word? Would you attack what needs to be attacked in our hearts and minds? Would you encourage what needs to be encouraged? Would you comfort those who need to be comforted? Would you disturb those who need to be disturbed out of complacency? God, would you help us? Would we be your people? Would you make us your people in Jesus' name? Amen. We're going to be in Genesis Chapter 7, if you have a screen, you can feel free to throw that up on your screen. It's going to be on this screen too. There's some paper Bibles as well if you need that. So however you're engaging with the text, let's engage with it today. Let's pretend, can we all pretend for a second that we don't know what's going to happen? Can we pretend for a second? Can we have that conceit among us that we would just pretend that we don't know the story of Noah? Last week, we saw that Noah was a person that God saw and it got God's attention. And that brought up some really weird stuff for us about God. Because God had planned and purposed to kind of destroy, not kind of, to destroy everything. And there's this big but in the Bible. But God saw Noah. But, but Noah's life somehow helped the imagination of God. And yes, I'm saying that because the scripture says it. Look at, look at Genesis 7, verse 1. We're going to pick up it with it there. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family. Because I have found you righteous in this generation. So among the people of the earth, at what we talked about was literally the lowest point in human history, where the scriptures say that the thoughts and intentions of the human heart were all evil all the time. That's what the scriptures said about what, what Noah's world was like. Your world is not worse. Your world is not worse. That was one breath of fresh air, right? That however bad you think things might get, they've never been as bad as they were at that moment. And so God looks at the world and he looks at Noah's life. And, and at the lowest point of history, at the time when there's just all, the Bible says all evil all the time, which we can't even fathom really. 
What is righteousness in this context that God sees? What, what is righteousness in, his con- in the context of his culture? Righteousness will find a definition in a few weeks for us in the life of Abraham. It will find a, a crystallized definition, but it is already reflected here in Noah's life. Essentially, righteousness is thought for us to be rightness, living or acting in a way that is right. Hence, righteousness, right? Not super complicated entomology of the word righteousness. It's rightness. Typically, that's how we approach it. So is righteousness about your actions? And we find in the scripture that when we, when we ask that question, is righteousness about your actions? We find that the scriptures throw in our face over and over again that you're asking the wrong question. Like, you're asking the wrong question. Is it about your belief or is it about your actions? We want to ask. Because we're Western and we're modern and we're able to compartmentalize our Facebook profile and our Twitter profile and how we act in one setting and how we act in another. Like, we're able to separate everything out. An idea totally foreign to the writers of the scripture. So we're like, well, is it what you believe or is it what you do? And the Bible is a person, right? Just, just scratching its head going, you're asking the wrong question. It's not the right question. Righteousness for Noah in his time, consider what it would be. It is always colored with this word faith. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that belief meant that he actually left his home and everything that he knew and he went to a new place. For Noah, Noah had to believe that God was going to send a flood. He had to believe that it was worth, he was worth saving. Something about humanity was worth saving enough to build a boat, right? In, in the face of all that evil and in the face of all of that question and doubt, he had to actually... So for Noah, he had to believe with his heart and his mind, and he also had to swing a hammer. That's what his life looks like. That's what righteousness and faith look like for Noah. Believing, but swinging a hammer. Not, that, that, is exa- that is a perfect symbol of our life with God. Because we want it to be either or. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to say, I can just swing a hammer. I can just do stuff, do stuff, do stuff, and it'll be fine. Or I want to be on the other side and say, I just got to believe stuff, believe stuff, believe stuff, live in my head and seclude myself and I'll be fine. And the scriptures kick over both of those ideas, especially in the lives of the heroes that we find in the scripture. Think of what it would take for Noah to live a healthy life in his day, in a place where all was evil all the time. Righteousness means that God found in Noah a person willing to live in a way that flew in the face of all the evidence that he saw with his eyes. And what was the evidence in Noah's day? If everything about him, everything around him was corrupted, violent, grasping, clutching, no one around him living in a way that wasn't just a walking death. For Noah to reach out to God, to love his family, to do everything he could to take the next healthy step despite the evidence that it didn't seem to matter, that everything had gotten worse. I want you to think about this. Noah's not a young man here. He's 600 years old. He's seen lives crashed upon the rocks of violence and despair and sin and death over and every wave of people just killing each other, hurting each other, being totally wrecked as humans. Look at what Hebrews 11, verse 7 says about Noah's faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. 
Noah believed there was a different way to live, a different way to love and serve and steer his life. And in that, he was alone. He, what, when no one else could see, that he could see was living this way. You see, there's this idea that, that only the good people survive in this text. And that, that righteous and that faithful means that Noah was good. But if you read the rest of the story, you know that's not accurate. And it's not even accurate at the beginning. Because it isn't just Noah on the boat. If you think that Noah is perfect or good, okay, we'll, we'll table that and we'll deal with it next week. But if you think that Noah is perfect or good, what about his family? The Bible doesn't say anything about his family being righteous. They're adult children with spouses, his spouse. The Bible doesn't say anything about their life. It only says something about Noah's life. Nothing is said about their righteousness. And there is some great evidence coming that they have some problems, like every other family in human history, right? But Noah builds a boat, not to save the world, but to save his family. There is an incredible grace shown to people willing to believe God and swing a hammer. An incredible grace given to people who believe something beyond reason, not something that you can prove or you can see. And this story in particular has been warred over by millennia by people that are looking to proof, looking to prove the story or disprove it. The, the, the story of Noah is one historically that scholars and historians and archaeologists have just gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for millennia, wondering, hey, did this really happen the way that it said that it happened? Is this story true or not? And the story isn't even about that. The story is about a man believing God and swinging a hammer. Look at what he says in verse 2 back in Genesis. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. Notice that the number seven comes up over and over and over again from seven days at the beginning in creation to seven here over and over and over again. It's a biblical number of completion. And God had said that he would wipe out everything, but he is and isn't wiping out everything. He's wiping everything on the earth, but he's not wiping out animals and people. Why the animals? Why the boat? Why, why all the work? Noah is acting out in his life the creation story again. What does God give Adam in the first couple chapters of Genesis, God gives Adam work, creative work. He gives him companions. He gives him animals. And he gives him a creative purpose. God will give the same thing to Noah and will do a new thing in recreating the world. But he will use the old world to do it. Old animals, old people, remnants from the world before. This number, 40 days and 40 nights, is another number that you'll continually see repeated in the scripture. God's family will wander 40 years in the wilderness in the Old Testament, Jesus will be tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And here a storm will rage for 40 days and 40 nights. The numbers are cool, yes. But the plan and the love of God is so much bigger and so much cooler. Look at verse 5. We don't know what he felt. We don't know how hard it was for him. But Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. He did it. Like he did the thing that God gave him to do. He, did, he completed his mission. And, and no, we don't know how he felt about it. 
And I love when, we, when modern people try to like write a story. There was a movie recently uh, that was about Noah. And it was interesting to see like how they filled in the gaps of stuff that we don't know from the scripture. You know? We don't know how he felt about it. We don't know if he was jacked about this or depressed. We don't know. But we do know that he did what God asked him to do. That what, however hard it was, however difficult, whatever doubts, whatever fears, whatever, whatever sadness even he had, that he was able to put one foot in front of the other and do it. It's something that sets Noah apart from all the other people whose hearts and, and intentions were all evil all the time. In Hebrews 11, Noah's, it says that Noah had faith. In Genesis 6, it says that, God did, that he did what God told him. So what does faith look like? In the scriptures, in the actual lives of people, it looks really, really messy. But Noah does what God commands, and he takes a step, and another, and another, and another. There's a deep connection between what you believe and what you do. Okay, look at verse 6. Still in Genesis. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. 600 years old. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. Can I just say that that's a long seven days to wait in a boat for a storm that you don't know is coming, but that you believe is probably coming? That's a long, long time. Can you think of the kids? They're adult children, but can you think of like... We, and again, we don't know that they're good people. Like we, the only person that was turning God's heart was Noah. You know, so can you imagine like adult the adult kids that are saying to Noah, "So, like, rain, or like like this flood thing? You know, the boat's cool, but but where's the storm? Where's the storm? Where is it, Dad? Are you sure that that wasn't like?" you know, the 600 years talking when it told you to build a boat. What, what exactly, what are we doing here? I know I would be there. I would be all over it. But in the 600th year, look at in verse 11, 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day, 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I'm going to get into just a little bit of the, the data and the ideas of what might have happened here. A lot of people think that there's a canopy of water surrounding the earth that burst at this moment, which is plausible. A lot of people believe that there's some water stored in the earth that erupted via earthquake at this time. And there are some things that point to that, even in the archaeological record, even in the historical record, which is pretty amazing. But we see that this rain has a catastrophic effect on the world that Noah's a part of. Look at verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that had the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals were going in were male and female of every living thing as God commanded Noah. And then an interesting detail, then the Lord shut the pit. So Noah builds a boat without a mechanism to shut the door. 
Like, th that's, that's kind of an interesting little wrinkle. And again, we're dealing with adults here and his children. So if you're an adult watching this happen, and you see, like, the first trickles start coming, and the rain starts going, and you're like, so, Dad, what about, like, the door? That's kind of a big deal. We see that the scriptures that, that God in his grace, we don't know how. He could, I, it could have happened any which way. But God shuts the door to seal them in, to carry this message of life and of new creation into the storm of death and destruction. It is a violent but profound image. And look at what happens in verse 17. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. And they rose greatly on the earth. And all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters, covered, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. I mean, you can't even imagine this, right? This is, there's, there's, this, you can't even, like, wrap your head around what might, this might have been like. There's obviously a great deal of historical controversy over the veracity of this story. And I know that there are some people in here that are thinking immediately, like, I don't buy it. You know, like, a worldwide flood, it just doesn't work, you know? And you're, maybe in your scientific research and discovery, you're thinking, like, how in the world could that have happened? There is a lot of controversy on this point. And some people have believed, and most people have believed throughout history, coming to this story, that the earth here obviously reversed to the whole earth. That's what I think. But others have also interpreted it as a more localized flood. There's some research that came out just a couple years ago of where people were researching how the Mediterranean Sea and the, the Black Sea Basin interacted with each other. And they pointed back in, to a, a, a very distant date that was sort of around the time where you might think that Noah would have been around. And there was this catastrophic flood that swept through this whole area and just destroyed everything. There are things like that. People have been, looking, people have been searching for the ark literally for thousands of years. Literally for thousands of years, people have been looking for it. But one thing I want to mention as you, guys, as, as you think about this, because I want to caution you on how you interpret the Bible. And this is critical to interpreting the whole Old Testament. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is true. The question is, how is the Bible true? If the earth referred to in Noah's story is the known earth in the ancient world, if it's a more localized earth, because they didn't know that the earth was even a ball at that point, it's not like a ball, but you get what I'm saying, that it's round, they didn't, scientists, bad for pastors to, you know, get into science, but because they didn't even know it was a, like, if it was just a localized flood, does that mean that the Bible is contradictory and untrue? It actually doesn't. On the one hand, glaciers, a comet, a canopy of water, certain archaeological discoveries can point to a worldwide catastrophic flood. And there are other ancient accounts all over the world of catastrophic floods around the same time. There's evidence for that. But on the other hand, if you and your own understanding of science and archaeology and history find that not to be the best explanation, and you can see a biblical writer describing the world that he sees, the earth as he knows it, being devastated by a catastrophic flood, does this change anything about the meaning of the story or its implications for us? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change any of the implications for us because the story is still true. How is it true? If it helps you to dig into the evidence, do it. Dig, search, wrestle. We are the people that wrestle with God. But there's a big but here. All of your searching and all of your wrestling, are you going to find definite proof? 
No, you're not. Spoiler alert, you're not. And you don't have to. But you're looking for it, just like I am. The search for proof is okay, but it might be misguided. Now, I teach that this is a worldwide catastrophic flood because in my own wrestling, my own search, my own pursuit of truth in the scriptures, that's what I believe. But you don't have to, and your friends don't have to either. And there are a lot of people in this world who think that the Bible is full of contradictions because we're not willing to be honest about how the Bible is true. If there's only one narrow interpretation of the story that must be held to, if there is only one way that the story can be true by modern peoples, and the most recent science or archaeology or history or whatever came up with evidence that disproves that, and your faith is built on that proof and that certainty, what happens to your faith? It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. I don't know that we're looking at the... I don't know that we look at the scriptures in the way that we should because if our first thought and our first inkling is to like try to prove and figure out like, did this really happen? Did it happen the way that it says it happened? Like, did it... What's the point of the story? I think we're going to find it here in a few verses. Look at verse 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds and livestock and wild animals. All the creatures that swarm over the earth. All mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground. And the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those with him in the ark. I have a question. What happened to the creatures of the seas in Noah's time? No idea. No idea. No idea. That's a big unanswered question for me. The text doesn't even mention the oceans, which actually might be kind of telling in a way. But consider what this would have actually been like. When God made the world, we saw him bring something out of nothing, bringing meaning and purpose and beauty out of chaos. And here in Noah's time, the world is plunged back into chaos. And in verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. You thought seven days was a long time to wait for a storm? How about 150 days of just flooding? And I mean, we, we teach this story to kids. Is this a kid's story? I, I mean, as you're in the ark, and if everything dies, can you, can you connect the dots there? Like we, like in the paintings, you know, in the, in the, in, on the nursery walls, where you have the, the ark on there, on a blanket, you know? It's perfect, like it's a beautiful ark, and it's like cartoon animals, and the water's just flowing. That's not what the story really describes. This is a painful, violent, chaotic journey that they take. You could lose your mind in this situation. A family could come apart in this situation. This is literally pushed, humanity pushed to the brink. But then I think in Genesis 8, we have the turn. You know, we're going to turn and we're going to find that the point of this story is really not about water. It's about something else. Look at Genesis 8, verse 1. And this is our last verse for today. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Like, ooh, big deal. God, remem God remembered Noah. God remembered his plan for the world is another way of reading that. God remembered that he was in a relationship with Noah that was going to survive a catastrophic flood. 
God remembered the animals and his heart was stirred. He remembered people and his heart was stirred. He remembered, and we talked about last week, and if you have all kinds of problems with, wait a minute, what about God remembering? How does that work with like God knowing everything? I don't know, and neither do you. Good luck if you want to figure that one out, you know? But God remembers Noah. The Bible says that his heart is moved. This story is typically taught as a, just a story of judgment and destruction for sin. But this story ultimately is about God, this crisis that God goes through. Because we saw earlier that, that God goes through this crisis where he looks at what he's made and he's like, this cannot go on like this. I, I will not let humanity be devastated and destroyed. I will not let the world that I made for them to live and love and care for, I will not let it be ruined by them. It cannot go this way. There must be another way. And where there is no way, God makes a way. He makes a way for Noah. He makes a way for his family. He makes a way for us. This is what God does. This is the God of the Old Testament, by the way. Not a God of doom and gloom and judgment. It's a God who is passionately pursuing his dreams for the world. That's what I believe when I come to the text. A couple questions for you all and for me. Are you being called to do something ridiculous in your life? You know, because Noah was called to do something ridiculous. Something that didn't make sense. Something that was beyond sense, right? A mark of faith. To build a boat when you didn't need one. To sit in a boat for seven days when it's not raining. To build a boat and not make a way to shut the door. I, I don't know. Is that an oversight? I don't know. Is that faith? Right? Noah takes a step towards the impossible. Towards the totally ridiculous. Towards even the absurd. For you and for me, it might not be that dramatic, right? I want to make everything melodramatic. You know, like the world is going to end if I don't figure out what I'm going to eat today, you know? But what in your life seems impossible? What seems ridiculous? This job doesn't make any sense. This relationship doesn't make any sense. Loving this person doesn't make any sense. The odds are too long. The risks are too great for me to love and serve and to give of myself in this situation. Where do you feel in your life that God has forgotten you? God remembered Noah, and he remembers you. God gave Noah a mission and a purpose as he gives it to you. Why don't we pray? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you consider those couple questions? Are you facing anything ridiculous in your life? Anything that doesn't make any sense? Seems impossible. situation. What is my next step? What is my next move? What do I need to say? What do I need to do? How do I need to love and serve and give of myself in this situation? Would you be so bold to pray that in your situation?
And then lastly, our last text said that God remembered Noah. And this is kind of cheesy, but just go with it. Put your name in there. God remembered me. God remembered me. God loves me. And you. Can you put yourself in the story? And see if God's love and service for you. Father, this is not a story for kids. It's, it's a story that we as adults wrestle with. Yeah, that we understand your unwillingness to let your plan be ruined and destroyed. It's a heavy thing. God, I pray for my friends and for myself that you would give us the courage, the faith, beyond what we see, to take a step in whatever impossible situations we face. Impossible relationships and jobs, impossible decisions, impossible finances, impossible health situations, impossible situations. God, help us to, as Noah was able to take a step and swing a hammer, would you help us to take a step? God, give us the words, give us the Actions give us the understanding of what we should be and do in this situation. And God, I pray for my friends, my friends that feel alienated, lost, separated from you, far from you. Man, even, even that would come to this text and say, man, this, this story sounds ridiculous. God, that we would hear your word, that you remember. You do not forget. You do not forget. Never forgotten the one. You don't forget us. It's your love and your grace and making us and sustaining us and giving us a life and a purpose is bigger than anything. Anything that would separate us from your love and your grace. <coughs> so God, would you equip us and send us to be your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. Like Nathan said, there's a box in the back if you're giving us part of your time with God. And we'll look forward to hanging out next week and finishing the story of Noah.